Welcome to this message from Port Life Church. Our goal is to bring life to the Port community and beyond. And our hope is that this message will inspire and encourage you today. Well, welcome to part four of our open book series. It's kind of like the series you have when you're not having a series, because each sermon is a standalone sermon. Anyway, um, welcome. Great to have you with us. Today, I want to entitle my message. For those that think that's important or helps you remember anything, that's good. But uh, it's good. I'm calling it Double Take. Probably if you have a look at that picture there, you can see what I mean by the double take. You see something, and then you think you see something, and then you realise, oh, actually, it's not really what I thought I saw. And uh, you've probably all done that. I mean, I did it just the other day when I was picking up my daughter. She's doing a bit of work experience or whatever at a hairdresser, and... Um, and so I went there a little bit early, and it's weird because I knew that my son's girlfriend wasn't there and that she was on holidays because that's the reason I was picking up my daughter. And so she was actually interstate because normally she would bring her home. But I saw this girl that looked so much like her at the counter that I second-guessed myself. and I thought, oh, she must have come back early. So I'm sort of standing at the front waving, <laughs> getting nothing. Probably just thinking, who is this creepy weirdo? that stands in front of hairdressers checking out all the nice-looking young girls. And it was like, oh, man. So anyway, I, 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 I sort of then I sort of snuck away. But I was just kind of thinking, gee, that looks like her. Really, like, uh, it took me ages to work out that it actually wasn't my son's girlfriend because they obviously got a bit of a thing going in that place where everyone kind of looks similar. Uh, anyway, so you've, you probably can relate to having done something like that and you've possibly ended up a little bit embarrassed like I have. Today I want to have a look at a passage in the Bible, or a chapter in the Bible actually, uh, Matthew chapter 5, where I think we can actually do that too. We can actually do this to that chapter. We think it's saying something when actually it's saying something else. It's not as it first appears. And so this particular chapter I'm mentioning to is actually often held up as like the gold standard of Christian behaviour. Something that we should all aspire to and hold each other accountable to. It's kind of like, in our thinking, it can be something like, with greater privilege, as a Christian, comes greater responsibility. Just me. Anyone, ever, anyone ever had that thought? Maybe you're thinking, what the heck is Matthew 5? I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, it will be familiar, I'm sure, to many of you when we start to read it. But I think it is one of those passages um, that is familiar to many, and we have an approach to it, that maybe isn't exactly what Jesus was intending for us. And so if that's the case, I think we need to do a double take on this particular passage. And so Matthew chapter 5 follows Matthew chapter 4, strangely enough. And in Matthew chapter 4, we read that Jesus was, was, his ministry was growing. He was growing in popularity and, and, and um, prominence. And he was teaching the word and going from synagogue to synagogue and expounding truth and but also doing all sorts of amazing miracles and healing the sick and, and so on. And so people were following Jesus. And so we get to Matthew chapter 5 and it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now again, it's often important to look at who is being spoken to because that can help us interpret the intention of, of what's being said. And it does say that he began to speak to his disciples. But interestingly enough, if you go to the end of chapter 7, it says the crowds were amazed because he taught as one with authority, not like their teachers of the law. And so it seems like Jesus maybe started initially just talking to those that were close to him, but 
the crowds were just sort of pressing in, pressing in. And so I think it was a message that is really relevant, <coughs> excuse me, to all. And so Jesus says this, again, probably familiar. Blessed or blessed, 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 whatever, <coughs> excuse me, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's like an unusual introduction to a message. And again, say a message, it's called the Sermon on the Mount often in many Bibles, but, and that's what it's known as. But, you know, really, if you sat down and read this little passage of Scripture, it's probably going to take you 10 minutes all up. But I kind of get the impression that this was kind of like more like a day outing. And Jesus was just chewing the fat and, and sharing things with these guys and, and you know, just expounding a whole bunch of things, probably going into way more depth than we actually have here. Okay? And so, but to me, you know, this is what Matthew's written. It's an unusual introduction. It's, it's kind of not overly inspiring, is it really? If you think about it. And actually, it's a little bit confusing. But it's to me. Because, like, what even is poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm, okay. Whatever, Jesus. <laughs> Okay, what about those who mourn? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, what sort of mourning, Jesus? Like all mourning? Like my footy team lost yesterday? Or I lost a family member? Or I don't have as much money in the bank as I would like? Like, does that just mean automatically I'm going to be comforted? And if we look at what he's talking about, I mean, some of the outcomes, well, all of the outcomes really are desirable things. I mean, who doesn't want to receive the kingdom of heaven? Who doesn't want to inherit the earth? Who doesn't want comfort? Who doesn't want mercy? Who doesn't want to be called a child of God? But the things that he links them to, you know, spiritual poverty, mourning, desperation, you know, hungering and thirsting, being merciful. I mean, these things are kind of not so much impressive and things that we're after, are they? If we're honest, maybe. Now, I said before about a double take. You know, the way that we read things and first encounter them is often a little bit different than what's intended. And I think the Beatitudes often comes across, and certainly the next bit of what Jesus is, is talking about, often comes across as a bit of a to-do list. These are the things I need to do in order to get the things that Jesus has on offer. But they're actually not a to-do list. They're actually a state of being. I mean, you can do mourning like you can pretend if you don't know the person that has died you can mourn you can put on black clothes you can throw ashes in the air and do whatever's culturally appropriate and do the process of mourning but that's not what Jesus is talking about Jesus is talking about something that we become something that we are something at the core of our being when someone you love dies it's a state of being you are mourning. 
You don't do poor in, the, poor in spirit. It's something you either are or you aren't. And it's something that you either know or you don't. And the revelation of your situation has an impact. You become that thing. <laughs> and so the Beatitudes really are a description of the blessed. They're not a to-do list to become blessed. They're a description of the blessed. That's the first point I want to make. And the blessed simply means those who are favoured, those who are to be envied, those who are happy. Now again, not generally things you associate with mourning and persecution and that sort of stuff that Jesus is clearly saying that the people that experience these things and are these things, they're the ones that are blessed. So like I said, confusing, raising lots of questions initially. Then a little bit later on, Jesus turns his focus to the law. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, I think it is. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now I imagine in the crowd that Jesus had around about him that there were all types of people. There were some who were very religious. There were some who were probably anti-religious. There were some who probably tried their best and got a bit burnt out and weren't really sure where they stood. And there were those that... Um, you know, that Jesus had already encountered in synagogues perhaps and, and they were a little bit nervous about him and they were thinking, you know, like, there's just way too much joy here and he's just treating people like friends. Uh, it sounds to me like he wants to get rid of the law. And then you've got all those people that are just like, it's just probably like a festival following Jesus to some degree because there would be so much joy. I mean, people have gone at death's doorstep and they're raised up to life. People went having suffered for years with different ailments and diseases and disabilities and they were being healed. It would have been absolutely awesome. And people could be forgiven that, like, this is like the Jesus party train. The law doesn't matter anymore because God's our friend. And Jesus sets people straight by saying, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For surely I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Ooh. Oh, that's a bit scary, isn't it? How do we respond to that? But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called greatest in the king or great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your right standing with God, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, I mean, they were the spiritual big shots of the day. They were the ones that kind of people were a little bit envious of and, and aspiring to be like. But many probably had, you know, realized they would never be like them. But really, you know, that was they were kind of seen as like God's favorites, and so people were aspiring to be like them. But Jesus says, "Look, unless your righteousness surpasses that of those guys, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." That is like horrific, <laughs> if you think about it from the standard from the standpoint of these people who are watching and they'd seen the Pharisees, they'd seen all their. They're amazingly eloquent prayers. And they'd see their great acts of generosity on the street corners. 
and they were impressed by their knowledge of the Old Testament and how it applied here and there and everywhere else. And, and maybe they were great orators and maybe they were charismatic and you know, they were certainly probably wealthy as well. And there was a whole bunch going on that, that people were impressed by. And yet Jesus sort of wipes that aside and says, you guys got to do better than them. And then he begins to reveal, I guess, something of the true beauty and horror of the law. You've heard it said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I'm just going to pick out a few scriptures from the rest of this passage. But it says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. For anyone who murders is subject to judgment. He goes, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Is that not frightening? Like if this is like, this is the standard, this is what Jesus is calling us to as his followers. This is terrifying. I may not have actually violated that this morning at that level. I, I can't think, in all honesty, I cannot think of anyone who I've been angry at just yet. Maybe I've come close, I don't know. But certainly if we go back to yesterday, I have certainly been angry. I've been angry at family members. I've been angry at those people that drive so close behind you, you can't even see their headlights. Oh. The ones that cut you off. I'm finished. I'm standing under judgment, according to what Jesus is saying, as probably are all of us in this room. You will be, if you're not now, you will be soon, guaranteed. That's the good news. It's actually not the good news. Some people get confused. They think that everything that Jesus said is the good news. This is not a proclamation of the good news. This is preparation for the good news. He's preparing the ground for the good news. The bad news precedes the good news. This is the bad news. This is not the golden standard that all Christians should try and be. Or do? Oh, Pete, you're a heretic. Shut up, man. <laughs> you're messing with my head. Look, we'll get there. Hopefully it'll make sense at the end if you're offended now. Or thinking, oh, hang on a minute, I can think of all these scriptures. Yeah, you can, absolutely. But again, we need to understand the context and what is Jesus trying to make the point of. All right, so, <clears throat> so Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, and I guess I can assume that that would go both ways, um, or any which way these days, um, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I mean, Jesus had all, all day to unpack this stuff. If he, maybe he didn't. Maybe he went beyond this. I mean, that's the obvious one, isn't it? But what about the person who's married? And they're not lusting after another man's wife because of how she looks. But gee, I wish my wife cooked like her. <laughs> or I wish my wife was a mother like she is. Is that not venturing into the realm of unfaithfulness? I don't know, just throwing it out there. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not break an oath. But I tell you, do not break your vows. Just say a simple, yes, I will, <clears throat> or no, I won't. Now again, who of us hasn't said yes to something, had a change of heart, 
and haven't rung up and said, hey, I've had a change of heart, I can't be bothered coming. It's like, oh, I'm really busy, mate. Yeah, got so much on. Sorry, I'd love to be there, but I just, it's like, no, you, no, you don't. You don't want to be there. You're just choosing not to go. Let's be honest. Judgment, right there. Bam. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, someone does something to you, you have every right to do it straight back to them. But Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, <clears throat> turn to him the other also. Now, I don't know about you, I just don't have enough faith for that. Like, imagine being so content, so conscious of God's justice and goodness and all that, that I just, just don't need to step in at all. I can just, God's got this. He'll sort it out. No, I want to take things into my own hands. I want to get my own justice. I want to make people pay when they hurt me. I certainly find it very, very difficult to, the whole concept not even resisting, like really? But surely the world would go to hell in a handbasket, it would be like chaos. Now again, we need to understand the difference between, you know, our, our, our judicial system and our social laws, and, and Jesus is talking, I guess, at a very personal level here. But this concept is, is like killing me, really, at one level. It's just like, really? I mean... How often does evil happen to us and we just, oh, yeah, that's cool. Carry on. Have another, another go. I mean, I'm talking like really bad things happen to people, really hurtful things, intentional things. People get ripped off. People get abused. People get raped. People get killed. People get beaten up, taken advantage of. And Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. Leave them to me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now again, hate your enemies, easy. <clears throat> Tolerate your enemies, Okay. Love your enemies? Really? Like, love your enemies. I mean, what is love anyway? Well, it's seeking the good of others, isn't it? It's wanting the best for them. Like, really? No way. Sorry, Jesus, I'm out. <coughs> and maybe you are too. And pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't think he's even talking about praying down judgment and curses upon their life. I think he's saying pray the best upon them. Pray a blessing on them. I don't know, is this horrifying? Is this frightening? Like if this is the standard, like is it really fair for us to be putting on each other, this is how you should live as a Christian? Is it really fair for me to be thinking, this is how I need to live as a Christian? Because I'm doomed to failure. I'm doomed to condemnation or I'm doomed to self-righteousness or I'm doomed to being a critical so-and-so who's picking on everybody else. 
if I'm called to live by the law and uphold this thing. But Jesus is not. He is not raising the standard. I've thought this. I've probably even preached it in days gone by to my shame and made people feel guilty and like they need to try harder and be better and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus is not raising the standard for Christians as much as many Christians think that's what he's doing. This was always the standard. He's just helping us to see it. He's revealing that the standard is actually impossible. It's an impossible standard. The demand of the law is absolute. Absolute faithfulness. Absolute truthfulness. Absolute love. Absolute trust. Absolute mercy. Not your best attempt on any given day, but absolute. And in case we missed it, Jesus concludes in verse 48 in chapter 5 by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So in in case before you thought, yep, it's hard, but I'm going to give it a red-hot crack, and I reckon I can manage it. Can you manage, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect? Because if you think you can do that, I can only reach one, one, one conclusion, that you, you're actually deluded. You don't understand who the Father in heaven is. Because all the things that Jesus was calling us to are the things the Father in heaven does. He does love his enemies because the Bible says we are enemies of God outside of Christ. But God loves us. Not only does he love us, he sends his son to die for us. All of the things that Jesus has listed out, the things that Jesus did, he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. He did it because we couldn't. He didn't do it and and say, come on, guys, wait, wait, try harder, try harder. He's like, these guys are never going to do this. They need someone to stand in the gap. They need a substitute. I'll do it. That's what the message that we're supposed to be getting as we're reading this. But it so often comes the other way, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 19 is the story of the rich young ruler. You may have heard it before. But you know the young guy, maybe he was at this thing, but I'm thinking not based on what he said. But he said to Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes, ah, just obey the commands. Don't murder, don't steal, honour your parents. He goes, ah, done that. Easy. What other good thing can I do? And Jesus says, well, because again, Jesus knows all of us. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses. So he goes straight to this guy's weakness. You're a wealthy man. Give away everything you've got to the poor. Then come and follow me. And it says, and the guy walked away sad. And Jesus said, oh, turns to the disciples. It's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they said, well, who then can be saved? And he talked about the camel going through the eye of the needle. And the disciples looked at Jesus and they go, well, who then can be saved? And he said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, the only way a rich man can be saved is because of what Jesus has done. Outside, it's impossible. But even with what Jesus has done, we can be so caught up in our trappings of life and our things and our pursuits and our appearances and our profile and our performance. And all that. It can be hard still, even with what Jesus has done, to enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's impossible without him. So what's our response? You know, if you think about this, 
you know, we're all dead men walking outside of Christ, every one of us, or even not walking. Maybe like we're actually on the cross because Jesus was in our place. He went in our place. But if you can imagine those thieves on the cross, like death is coming, but the Romans had a little trick to speed it up a bit. They'd come along and they'd break your legs so you couldn't support yourself and breathe anymore and it hastened death. This is what Jesus was doing. It's like Jesus is like, hurry up, you guys, die. (laughs) Because we're so busy hanging on to our life and our righteousness and our goals and our visions and our this and our that. And Jesus said, the way to life is death. (laughs) The sooner you realise that what you're trying to do is impossible, the sooner we can get on and do life together and experience the life that is truly life. You can know the joy, then you can know the peace, you can experience the comfort, you can have the mercy. So, yeah, Jesus, I've got this. Well, no, we don't. Maybe we can get offended and say, are you really saying that I'm like some of those other people that do things wrong? Again, we're missing the point. Maybe today you have no argument. Maybe, like, you get that. Like, absolutely, Jesus. You didn't, you didn't need to elaborate. Just on the 10, I'm done. Never mind the other 613, you know, like... I am done on the Old Testament, just the Ten Commandments. I have been unfaithful to my wife. I have, I have actually literally killed someone or I've beat people up or I have stolen. You don't need to convince me. I know I am a sinner. My failings show me. My family tell me. The Christians are always pointing it out to me. I get it, Jesus. Thank you very much. The only thing I'm glad about is the fact you've leveled the playing field somewhat. Or maybe, and I think this is what Jesus intended, is that we do a double take. We kind of get to the place where we go, whatever spiritual currency I thought I had, I now realise it is counterfeit. I mean, imagine you're a young kid and you save all your money that you've ever been given or earned, and you go to the shop and you want to buy something, and they go, sorry, mate, you can't use that here, that's Monopoly money. Ah, uh, okay. Look, all our righteousness, all of our best deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. We've got nothing to offer him. We absolutely are poverty-stricken. This is what, you know, like poor in spirit. I didn't understand what it meant before, but as I think about it now, it's like, oh, that's it. It's just, just, I've got nothing. I'm bankrupt as far as God's concerned. I've got nothing to give him. Absolutely nothing. And that knowledge, surprise, surprise, that is like devastating. That causes despair. That makes you grieve. Hang on, didn't Jesus start by saying the blessed are those that mourn? Oh, it's starting to make sense. He talked about being hungry and thirsty. Now, again, when we stand before the demands of the law and we think we're a relatively good guy, well, we thought we were until we stood there, suddenly we begin to hunger and thirst for something that we didn't even realise we needed. Righteousness. We want right standing with God. And so suddenly, again, the Beatitudes are certainly not just something we do. We try and achieve. I'm going to be a little bit more merciful. I'm going to, I'm going to put on a bit of a straight face. And I'm going to pretend to be super serious and give this people just this air of, you know, just that religious sort of, uh, I don't know really what it is, but... You know, like you can't have too much fun because you're a Christian and you've got to be sort of mourning a little bit. 
It's not that. It's like if your best friend, your partner in life has just died, you're mourning. It's, a, it's, it's who you are right in that moment. And so when we recognise that we are bankrupt before God, we are living it. And so now we're back to the beginning. We're blessed. Certainly not through trying to uphold the law. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. And he goes on, he actually gives us a, Paul gives a whole bunch of warning about the danger of slipping back into that old pattern of it's up to me. I've got to try harder. I've got to be better to impress God. He says, No, no, no. If you do that, you come back under a curse. Now, again, I don't think we need to get weird about that, but as I said before, there's, there's a curse in trying to follow the law, the curse of condemnation, the curse of criticism, the curse of self-righteousness, all of those things ruin our lives and the lives of others. But the blessed are those who have a revelation of their true condition, whose illusions about themselves and also about others have been totally stripped away. Those, I guess, who in their grief... And their spiritual desperation actually humble themselves, become meek. And they receive their righteousness through him. Because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled it on our behalf. And then when I'm in that place, when I recognise I'm bankrupt, when I am deeply cut to the core about that, when I have bowed the knee to Jesus... It's amazing how suddenly I get also the revelation, but those people that tick me off so much, they're no different than me. They're doing their best, and some of their best impacts negatively on me. But suddenly, oh, hang on, what's that I feel in my heart? What's that I'm becoming? (gasps) Merciful. A peacemaker. And interestingly enough, Jesus talks about persecution at the end. And isn't it weird how even in the church, you can cop persecution for being merciful to people? Because maybe, you know, this person has hurt that person, but I'm trying to respond from my heart the way I feel that God feels about that person. But this person now thinks I'm taking sides. Oh, Lord, help us. That's even in the church. Never mind those who don't believe in God, who hate Jesus, etc., etc., or think we're trying to tell them what to do. And a lot of that's because of our misunderstanding of Matthew chapter 5. We try and put you know, those high standards, those high and lofty standards that we believe we're called to live up to, we try and put that on everyone else as well. We're going to be persecuted. But in the midst of that, we'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. When the law has led us to Christ... Its job is done. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, 25 says, The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could make a right and be made right with God through faith. And now the way of faith has come. We no longer need the law as a guardian. So I'm not saying the law is not good. The law is good. It tells us how to treat one another, gives us some clues. It's something that we can base our, our legal codes on and all that sort of stuff. The law is good, but it's not the way we relate to God. God is not impressed by how we keep the law, his law, or any law for that matter. But I'm not saying that we're anti-law or lawless. 
we're actually called beyond the law to something higher. Again, the law is often quite negative. Again, don't murder. But Jesus says love. In fact, the whole law is summed up in love your neighbour. So God releases us from the demands and the supervision of the law because the life, and when I say the life, I mean that which happens when we are born again, the life that's imparted to us and when the Holy Spirit comes into us, the life and the revelation of without Jesus I am totally finished, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, who's made a way for us for eternal life, that revelation. You know what that does? It actually naturally produces in us a result that is far greater than trying to adhere to any law can ever give. Because I can, I can obey laws without heart. But if I have God's heart impacting on my heart, God who is love dwelling in me, it's amazing how I can express love to the unlovely. I can be merciful to the people that I think don't deserve mercy even. Well, that many think shouldn't. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You'll see Christians who live beautiful and amazing and compelling and impressive and inspiring lives. But don't be fooled into thinking it's because they're following the law. It's because Christ... In them is the hope of glory. He's expressing himself through them. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. The only challenge is that we do have a choice in this matter. It's not like the Holy Spirit comes along and, and just treats us like puppets and we just, you know. No, we maintain a degree of choice. And so we can choose in any given moment to be led by the Spirit, or we can be living by, according to the sinful nature and just allowing our old self to come up and express itself. But that's not God's intention. God's intention is that we walk in the Spirit, not gratify the desire of the flesh. Live in love and faith. If the law has a place in the life of the believer, to me, surely it's just got to be the fact that it's a reminder of the goodness of God. I used to get so stressed out when I recognised I was falling short. And now it's almost comical to me, like not that I want to treat sin or my stupidity lightly, but before I redouble my efforts and try and be better and in the process end up more religious and more critical and judgmental of others, and now I thought, Lord, I've done it again. Thanks God, thank you, Jesus, that here I am treating those kids or my wife or whoever else that I love in life, I'm, I'm, I'm having a moment, I'm getting angry and frustrated with them and... Lord, I refuse now because I'm no longer under law. I'm not going to feel condemned. I'm not going to allow it to ruin my day. I'm going to come to you, I'm going to hand it over to you, and I'm going to ask for your help to express your love that is already in me. And imagine how simple and beautiful and sweet and blessed life is when we, when we recognise that God's for us, he's in us, and he's wanting to help us with those things for so long we have been struggling to attain in our own strength. So if you struggle to be thankful to God, if you struggle to worship, if you struggle with being judgmental, if you struggle with being critical or vengeful, 
Maybe it's just because you have a wrong take on Matthew chapter 5. You've allowed yourself to fall into the trap of relying on human effort rather than trusting in God's love, God's power. Again, no one's denying the fact that Christians can do bad things. But again, in the midst of doing a bad thing, we're called to faith. The faith that there is no condemnation. Lord, you've seen it. I've seen it. I can't deny it. I am so sorry. And in that instant, I receive your forgiveness. I don't carry on as if I'm under law and then try and try harder to be a good person. I receive the forgiveness of God and there's a transaction that takes place. And it's then expressed in the way that I deal with others. I can go from being angry and frustrated with someone in an instant the Holy Spirit can speak and I can see them totally differently and my heart can be breaking for them in their situation by the power of God, not my own strength. So if we forget the point of the Sermon on the Mount, we fall into those things. But I would encourage us to remember Jesus' real point in the Sermon on the Mount. Living up We're trying to attain righteousness, right standing with God in our own strength through the law is not just hard work, it is impossible. I was talking with Nick the other day and we are preparing and I just mentioned, I said, Nick, if it's possible, it's not the gospel. And he goes, you have so got to write that down. You've so got to say that. So there you go, bud, I've said it. But really, if it's possible, thanks, mate. Yeah, yeah. You're a bit late, man. You said you're going to do it straight away. No, (laughs) he didn't really. (laughs) Um, But seriously, if it's possible, if we think at any any moment in this Christian walk, whether you've been a Christian five seconds, five minutes, five years, five decades, if you suddenly get to the point where where you think, I've got this, you've fallen away from grace. And this is why so many older Christians are beautiful and awesome and sweet. Because they've got over themselves. They've had a revelation of who they are. They've tried to be good. They've tried to raise their kids the best they can. They've tried to protect them. They've tried to do all this. And crap still happens. And, and when that happens, you get disappointed. You get angry. You get frustrated. You doubt whether God's even there. You think, why me? And, and, and you've, all your illusions are gone. Whereas when you're a young punk, like me, you know, at 20 years old, become a Christian and suddenly telling all my friends I need to know Jesus and they're going to go to hell and burn, if I, you know, <laughs> and, and then putting on other people and... If it's possible, it's not the gospel. We have to hit a wall. We have to have our legs broken. We have to have our illusions absolutely shredded. And then we can worship. Then we can be merciful. Then we can be peacemakers. And yeah, not everyone's going to get it. Some are going to hate it. But it doesn't matter because we inherit the kingdom of God. We are children of God. We experience the comfort and the mercy of God. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Port Life Church. If you have any questions, please email info at portlife.org.au. Have a great day.